You know, what I love about cinema is going into a big dark room with 700 people and through their laughter and through their surprise and through their shock and through their reactions, you realize, you know, I'm not alone. I'm, I, I have the same, I'm, I'm wired into this group in the same way, just organically. You know, that, that is what makes the cinema. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director David Fincher's new biographical comedy drama, Mink. In the film, 24-year-old prodigy Orson Welles hires Herman J. Mankiewicz, a scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter, to write the screenplay for his masterpiece, Citizen Kane. In addition to Mank, Mr. Fincher's other directorial credits include the feature films Seven, Panic Room, Zodiac, and Gone Girl, and episodes of the television series House of Cards and Mindhunter. He was nominated for the DGA's Theatrical Feature Film Award for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mr. Fincher spoke with director Aaron Sorkin about filming Mank in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Well, hello. Uh, I'm Aaron Sorkin, and I'm here with my friend and one of the greatest filmmakers who has ever lived, uh, David Fincher. Uh, you know him, of course, from Alien 3, Fight Club, <laughs> 7, Benjamin Button, a uh, film called The Social Network. Uh, Little that, film. That I have fond memories of. Yeah. Girl Little Dragon film Tattoo, Gone Girl. And his latest film, which is my favorite film of the year, Mank. Uh, so, David, I'm really glad to be talking to you. Um, I'm glad to be back talking with you. We should. I, I, I'm beginning to wonder if we shouldn't like try to take this to local cable affiliate. Uh, well, I think that we should. Um, right. if, but I would want to include some musical numbers. Oh, interesting. We have very little time. And okay. I have much too much to, to really. If I wanted to ask you everything I wanted to ask you about Mank, we'd be here until Easter. Uh, but let's just start with this. Can you talk about how the film came to be? It's been sure. a long time in the making. It has. Um, it it started with a love for and of Citizen Kane, and um, it was certainly a a film that was introduced to me by my father, who. Um, uh, hailed it because he was an ex-journalist as the only important and relevant, you know, American masterpiece in cinema. And I was sort of bequeathed this and saw the movie when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And then later read the um, uh, now refuted and, and dismembered um, uh, Pauline Kael essay. And when my father decided to retire from writing magazine stories, um, he wanted a new task. And he very much revered um, uh, that era and those screenwriters specifically. And so I encouraged him to try to write about Herman Mankiewicz. And he did. And we kind of kicked the script back and forth for many, many years. And finally, Netflix said, what do you have that you would like to see? And uh, and they said yes to it. When was that? That was two. That was about two years ago, two and a half years ago. So it was very, it was pre, it was fairly um, quickly on the tail of 
wrapping um, season two uh, or delivering season two of Mindhunters. Uh, uh, by the way, I did not uh, mention your television work, which is extraordinary. It, um, you know, I've known you for 10 years and it wasn't until Mank that I knew your father was a screenwriter. Well, he wasn't. He was a magazine writer who had written a couple of screenplays, but um, but he um, thought it was he in his explanation to me about sort of hierarchically what was uh, what was uh, what he was passionate about. He really felt that um, screenwriting was the most kind of difficult uh, kind of uh, drama because again, you're leaving so much up to the interpreter who's going to take it from two dimensions and you're, and you don't really know the, um, you don't really have, uh, the audience for a motion picture is a very wide swath. It's a mm -hmm. very, it's, you know, so it's not some, you can't really predict what the audience is going to come in at knowing or, and how much you're going to have to, you know, give them a history lesson or whatever. So to his mind, this was the people who really did it. People like yourself, he was always um, harping on me about West Wing. You've got to watch this. And, um, <laughs> <Sorry>. and, <laughs> and, and, and Goldman and Bo Gold, all the Goldmans, all the Goldmans, and all the Goldmans. And, um, and, uh, and so he was, he, he, he really felt that this was, as a tool um, to tell a story or, or as a medium to tell a story through, he really felt that this, you know, that for the, for the, a writer, this was a way of really accessing parts of uh, the audience's mind, mm -hmm. you know, not to say that novels are not, that's a very intimate relationship. He, he liked the scope and the scale of having people play dress up and pretend to be these people and have them be photographed and then have, you know, juxtaposition of images and music and all these other things that could be brought to bear. Um, I wish I had met him. He passed away seven years before I met you. Yes. But I'm curious if you don't mind talking about it. When, when you're uh, working on a script, when it gets to the point where you're working with a director now uh, on the mm -hmm. script, which is usually the last thing that happens before you go into production. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you were my boss uh, on the social <laughs> network. What is the dynamic? Of <laughs> uh, uh, being the boss when your father is the employee, um, it's not easy. Um, it, yeah, um, it was. Uh, listen, we we had a very odd and um, collegial relationship. You know, we were very much about honesty above everything, and um, you know, my father had. You know, my father alternated between having great confidence in me and my abilities and not, you know, and also being protective of my feelings and the downside and all that stuff. So, but, but generally speaking, we were, um, you know, you know, he made no bones about the fact that he thought seven was kind of rubbish and, um, um, or at least he felt it was overtly nihilistic and and therefore you know limited in it um later i'm sorry i, I have to ask you and I, I don't want to turn this yeah no, it's fine. into a father son it, it could be uh, therapy uh, how does your father say to you uh i don't like seven it's nihilistic well when does that conversation happen well he saw it at the premiere mm -hmm. um and he was 
he was really disturbed by it. And um, again, remember, my father was the one who told me about Clute, you know, and who said, you have to see this movie, what they do, you know, what they do stylistically with this movie is really something. And, you know, and I was not, as a kid, I was not allowed to go see violent movies. So a movie with a poster that had, um, in the poster, I think, doesn't font, she has the scissors in her yeah. hands and stuff. So that was, you know, my mom was very much like, no, 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 no. And yeah, I didn't get to see The Godfather until the second release because people got shot and stabbed and knives went through hands and things like that. So um, I never got to see Chinatown in its first release because of the violence in that. But my father was very much like, these are the, not yet, you're only 10s, but eventually when you see this movie, you have to see it because of the, I think in the case of Clute, because it was, it's complete. You know, it just had such a complete, um, you know, he was impressed by the world that um, um, that Alan and, and and Gordon and everybody involved like created. But he was also so so. For instance, walking out of the premiere of Seven, he was extremely upset. He was very and and part of it was the movie is upsetting and and for a lot of people that's a hard thing to divorce oneself from you the effect mm-hmm. of a movie on you and your feeling about it but eventually he got to a point where he said look it's really effective it's really affecting um uh, i'm uncomfortable with the um the litany of violence that is visited on the people but he was also respectful of the fact that it all happened off camera and um so it was a give and take, but I, but I think, but he said something about like, uh, you know, I hope this isn't a f- reflection of your upbringing kind of, thing. <laughs> and, and I would say, no, no, I mean, except for the movies that I saw. Um, and then uh, he really, really disliked Fight Club. He thought it was, uh, uh, I gave him the script and he said, there's just nothing funny about this. And then when he saw the movie, he said, it, it, I, I, at first she said, I don't know why you're making this. And, and I said, because I think it's funny. And then he was even more distraught. And then he saw the movie and he really didn't like it. And then a year or two later, he was kind of like, okay, I get, I, I understand now what you were doing. Uh, so, it was, so it, it, you know, at the same time that he was saying, I prefer you not to make this kind of entertainment. He was like, he could also take a step back and say. I really do wish I'd met him. Yeah, he was so, odd. Uh, Netflix says to you, say, what, what do you want to do next? And you tell them this. Did you tell them at that time that, or did you know at that time that you uh, were going to make it in black and white? Oh, yeah. No, the reason that it languished for as long as it did was because nobody, I mean, you know this, there are the, the, these long, long lists of things in terms of your deliverables. Like, you know, you actually have to go and ask permission not to mix something in 5.1 stereo, mm-hmm. right? It's just not heard of in this day and age. The delivery specs are color, you know, widescreen or, you know, flat, 185 or scope, you know, you, and and you have to deliver either 7.1 or 5.1. So when you say, I want to do it in black and white and I want to do it in mono, all of a sudden somebody at the head of the studio has to call down the chain to the people who are doing foreign pre-sales in sell-through video and they will say, ah, we can't, we can't touch this. And the beauty of Netflix is that 
this one-stop shopping, they can go, yeah. You mean turn off four speakers? We can do that. Yeah. So uh, I agree that it, it is one of the many beauties of Netflix. Um, I want to talk about the sound okay. uh, for a second. Uh, if it were me, which it wouldn't have been because I would never have gotten that far creatively uh, with it. But if it were me, all I'd have been able to do is say, I want it to sound like Citizen Kane sounded. I don't know how they made it sound like that. Are we able to make it sound like that? Okay. And the fact that you know how to make it sound like that is well, we didn't. that I'm jealous of. Initially, we didn't. And, and, and depending on who you talk to, there are certain people who are like, oh, God, it just sounds echoey. Or it sounds all mumbly and warbly. Um, it, it originally started with conversations about the effect of the movie on the audience. And, and, and one of the problems that I had had with getting people to read the script was the anachronistic, um, uh, the anachronistic quality of the patois, you know, that there were these, you know, there, there are, I mean, it's a very strange thing to have John Hausman walk into a room and go, oh, here are all the characters who must have met each other before they got in the car and drove four hours to Victorville, but let me now reintroduce them. And, <laughs> and, and that was one of Jack's things. It was like, they did this in the, in the movies of this era. It was not uh, untoward to have characters, you know, say, oh, you know, what is it? Uh, Good morning, Mr. Water Commissioner. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so in, in an attempt to um, kind of stylistically trap this patois in amber, um, one of the ideas that I had was what if we presented it not as, well, it's just in black and white and it's just mono. What if it's in black and white mono and it literally looks like a relic, like, like something that has been sitting at um, uh, in the in a vault at UCLA and is now being sent to Martin Scorsese's house for you know for a Tuesday night <laughs> viewing and and in that you know I was speaking with Ren Kleiss who's a, uh, one of my oldest friends in the world and also the sound designer on the movie um, we started talking about well, you say you want it to sound old what is it that you mean and I would and this discussion began with ribbon microphones and or, uh, you know, recording. I mean, should we record to wax disc? I don't know. Like, what gives you that that palpable sense of of old movies? And first, it's like an equalization question. You know, the, the first thing that that we did was listen to old movies, you know, and not only Kane, but. Um, you know, his girl Friday and you know, shock corridor, and you and you and you put these movies up and you listen to them. And the first thing that we were were cognizant of was this diminished capacity for bandwidth. There's just not as much frequency response. I mean, these are these are very limited technologies. So that was number one. So then so Ren at Skywalker took old movies and started to map them and, and what the envelope was able to deliver in terms of fidelity on, on certain, in certain spectral analysis. So you could look at it and say, we're not getting anything out of it. And, and it's called, we, it's notched. You take, take the whole image and you just cleave off 
sections of it that this technology was not able to record and store. And so in the in the finding out of sort of what the image was and what the EQ would be, we came up with our own like little plug-in that we could, and we listened to it and it was like, yeah, it's good, but it's not quite there. And finally, <clears throat> in a conversation that we were having probably over a glass of wine and dinner or whatever, I said, no, it, it has to sound like a revival house. It has to sound like that, you know, sitting at the Castro or sitting at the, you know, not a man's Chinese, not a front, you know, not a first run house, but a revival house. And what does that? And then we started to talk about, well, you know, in older theaters, there's, you know, the, there's not the flocked or the baffled or the sound um, uh, insulated um, fabric and padding that you have on the walls at Arclight or, um, so we were saying, okay, so there's a little bit of that slap. There's a little bit of that echo. There's a little bit of the reverb. And then we talked about the Tamil Pius theater, which is a theater that we grew up with in Marin County and sitting in the, in the balcony there. And there was like, you know, there would be, you would hear the echo. There's no surround sound. This is pre 1976. So it's pre stereo, pre surround. And, but the, but the sound came out of the, single speaker and then it would sort of reverberate in the room and then we just decided you know we asked ourselves do we want to disappear up our own rectums for <laughs> without a flashlight and and try to try to add this layer of uh and indeed we could not be dissuaded it was it, it had to be so we recorded the sound of a giant room and our mix playing in it uh i'm i'm Grateful that you did that. That last point you made, the sound of a giant room in your mix, playing with it. Yeah. Uh, you told me that you, you know, after recording uh, all the sound, mm -hmm. you then replayed the sound in a church and recorded. No, not in a church, in a scoring stage. On a scoring stage. Yeah. So, so what we did was we we basically um, in a five point one setup. You have LC and R, left, center, right, which are the three main speakers that are behind the uh, screen, the screen mm -hmm. array, and then you have surround channels, two discrete surround channels on the side, and you have a subwoofer, and that's your total of five, two, three, uh, three, two, one. Um, so five and one. Um, so we tried to mix everything for the center speaker, and and it proved to be. Um, proved to be a nightmare because we're just so we're so used to the bandwidth of being able to have 96 channels you know or 200 channels however many mm -hmm. channels i mean we had probably you know they when they're mixing the music even even in a covid friendly with with sending old microphones and recording devices to each individual musician's home for them to play their part when that when those tracks came back, they could be a hundred channels across. I mean, it, so we're so used to being able to throw bandwidth at a problem just to be, but but your ears can't like you you put that much sound pressure and that much data through one speaker, it, it forces you to go. I mean, you realize how why movies from the thirties and forties are so sparse in terms of the sound. 
because they only had one like piece of vermicelli to get that elephant through. And so they stripped everything back in order for intelligibility as, as much as anything. So anyway, we ended up with L and R, left and right speakers were the sound imaging. So we spread that in the center. We had all the dialogue, you know, hard effects. We had a little bit of subwoofers for some car buys and things like that. And then we took that mix into the scoring stage at, at Lucasfilm at, at Skywalker Sound. And we played that LCR mix into this massive scoring stage. And then we set up 12 microphones in the scoring stage that were all sort of period ribbony, limited technology, limited bandwidth. And we recorded the sound of the whole place. And then we put that into the surround speaker. It's amazing. I just want one last thing about the sound uh, uh, before we move into the rest of the film. Uh, in addition to those technical choices that you made uh, with the sound, I was also knocked out by the fact that when someone would walk outside and have a conversation on the porch mm -hmm. uh, of the cabin, they sounded like they were in a cathedral uh, <laughs> instead of outside. That um, is... That's just, and that is just perfectly, period. Well, in your cathedral, I mean, that is, for me, the, um, the altar of cinema. You know, what I love about cinema is going into a big dark room with 700 people and through their laughter and through their surprise and through their shock and through their reactions, you realize you know, I'm not alone. I'm, I, I have the same, I'm, I'm wired into this group in the same way, just organically. And I'm picking up on all these other cues. You know, that, that is what makes the cinema a, or, you know, a, a great grand theater, a, an almost cathedral like experience. Okay. Uh, casting. Was it yeah. Barry all the way? Yeah. I mean, uh, we talked years ago, um, before um, in nineteen in the nineteen nineties, we had talked about uh, Kevin Spacey at one point, um, but at the the moment in time that um, that uh, uh, Netflix said we would we would like to make this, um, it was scary. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just you know you. you you know what it's like. You, you, often you don't dare to dream, and in this case, it was like, if we're not if we're not aiming for that, yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with you. Um, and uh, uh, Lily uh, was kind of a no brainer. Well, and and it's funny because I tend to, I mean, I know I, I know you know what this feels like. There are times when you just go, oh, it's just too perfect, right? It's just like mm. and. And, you know, I was so, so uh, Lorraine said to me, what about Lily Collins? And I was like, oh, she's lovely. She, well, I don't know. It's a little too, l l let's see her on tape. And then she sent in this tape and it was like, just because it's perfect casting doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah, that's right. And listen, I really do feel ashamed uh, to tell you the truth that I was surprised as I was by Amanda Seyfried's. Uh, performance. I know. I really should have known uh, uh, that she could do that. Uh, she's given fantastic performances. Uh, she in, in the past. is, yeah. And I mean, I think 
I think we all, you know, when your job is to sit in a chair and watch TV all day and go, is this working? Is this not? Is she, you know, when you're, when you're presented with that as a um, life choice, mm. um, you know, there, there's a tendency to, um, there's a tendency to reduce everything that you, that you're, you know, watching to st- keep abreast of things or, e- or even like, you know, even when you get to these cut down reels of, a, of an actor's capable, you know, the, the reels that their agents send out or, or even what's available at the CA website or whatever. And there's a tendency to kind of have this like sense of, I know what, I know what that is. I know, I know. And, and Amanda was somebody that I, I had seen her in, I'd seen her in a couple of things and always thought she was, you know, stunning to look at and luminous. Um, And the question for me was, um, was she going to work hard and was she going to be curious about this woman? Because I, I was never going to be able to, you know, throw my arm around her in the same in, in in the way that I have with other actors in the past, we were heading towards a, a start date and I did not have a personal relationship with Amanda, did not know her socially. Mm-hmm. And, and I was never concerned on, I was never concerned that she didn't have the chops. I was concerned mostly that we wouldn't get her focus and that her, and that we wouldn't have all of her attention because she was shooting another movie and she would be walking out of that movie and literally like, you know, in some cases Mm -hmm. I think she bounced back and forth maybe once or twice. Lily did that throughout, but, but Amanda. So my big, my biggest question was, is she, is she going to be, is she going to want to do, um, she's going to want to do the number of takes. Is she going to want to play in the, you know, act for, somebody who likes to work in a very specific way, which is I want to have, and you've witnessed it. So it it doesn't seem as strange to you. I think as, as when people say, well, it's a hundred takes, it's not a hundred takes of everything, but um, it's a, it's a process by which um, you're sort of excavating um, what a person can do with this material in any given moment. And, and for me, there are certain, and a lot of this will be, you know, I mean, you and I went through this on, on social networkers. Like my initial thing was, I don't know Disney kids. Like I know we but, have to cast young actors, but no Disney kids. No, because, I remember you specifically saying that. Yeah. Cause they're gonna, it's like the kid from the Crest toothpaste commercial. It's like, I don't want that kid. Right. Right. What we ended up with mostly Disney kids because they're so fucking prepared. They yeah. are so like ready to come and, you know, Justin Timberlake, you know, as he used to say, Justin, coach, Brenda, tell uh, me which hole to hit. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like it's a running back getting his reps. And, and, and Brenda, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. even like, um, anyway, I, I had that kind of reservation. I had this sort of preconceived idea of who Amanda was and that she was much more sort of, that, that it would be hard to get all of her, that it would be hard to get all, into her peripheral vision. And then I had a Skype with her and she was awesome. She's sort of, she's super curious. She's, 
She's completely plastic in the way that she thinks about things. She has no rigidity when it comes to her pre, she has no preconceived notion. She comes into everything saying, heap it on me. Tell me where it is you think. Here's what I'm thinking. And it's all, it's all give and take. And, and when it got down to being on set and you could say, okay, now I need you to take this and I need you to be thinking about this over in here, as opposed to you, the text may read this way and you may want to, but now what I want you to do is find that by the end of this paragraph of stuff and not find it, not find it at the beginning, be illustrating, uh-huh. but find it as you talk. And she's, oh, and, and she couldn't have been more uh, lovely or amenable. Well, it sure paid off uh, on screen. Um, you're right when you say that I've experienced the hundred takes, though it it wasn't a hundred. It was um, actually ninety nine takes of the no. It was yeah, ninety nine takes over like five or six setups over two nights. Over two nights. The first, first all, setup was a lot. Uh, it first of all, it, yes, it was ninety nine takes, five setups, and two nights. I don't know who else in the world gets two shooting days to shoot that scene. Uh, okay. Um, if that- we were we were literally setting the tone for the movie, and we knew David, it was an important scene. I, I heard- am all for it as a writer. Um, uh, what I liked uh, about the number of takes that you did is just you know the the the, right, the writing, and the same is true in Mank. Uh, if you aren't able to casualize it somehow, yeah. it can get operatic. Um, uh, and it can go bad fast. Uh, well, and, and your and nine Mank is also two nights just tired them out. It essentially had the same effect of previews uh, on Broadway. Just casualize it. Keep doing it. You also didn't want them giving the performance they were giving in the shower before they came to the set. Um, well, I, I think that, look, I'm not averse to an actor saying, okay, what do I think this is? Let me Let me work it out. Now, let me present to you, um, the uninitiated, all of the thoughts that I've been having about this, and I'm going to show it to you in a free-flowing you know, version of this performance. I'm not averse to that. The reality of that is that um, there's this amplified tension underneath it, which has to do with the relationship between pleasing and uh you know hoping that validation you know has everything that i've been you know applying in terms of what i think about this character is it correct is about blah, 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 blah. you know you you get into this thing with um a lot of actors when you say okay i need another one and what did i do wrong it's like you didn't do anything wrong you didn't do anything wrong. but it's somewhere in all of that is right. this is this sense of yeah i want to do I want to do in, you know, we've rehearsed it in a, in a conference room, in a con- around a table. We haven't, we haven't rehearsed it in a room that has a guy with a plaster cast on half of his body and a, and this apparatus to like lift his leg and, and typewriters and all the stuff that has to happen in this. We haven't done that. So we're putting it on its feet the morning of, mm-hmm. but when we're going to do the master, I got to do, you know, I got to do the out of town previews. I got to do the off Broadway. I got to do the Broadway and I've got to get it. I've got to make it be the best that it See, can be. That, that's exactly right. When, when I'm doing a play, we have five weeks of rehearsal then six weeks of previews. And then we have opening night. And with the play, 
I have now. It's, it's on hiatus during the yeah. pandemic, like every other play. Um, Jeff Daniels uh, uh, was the star. I got an email uh, from him one night uh, after the show saying it was a great show tonight. I really think uh, we've got it now. And he sent me that email five months after we opened. <laughs> Well, you know this. You have you have actor friends, and you go to see them on the show on Broadway or on the West End or whatever, and you go back afterwards at some sort of because they're always sweaty and tired, and they don't really want to see you, but you <laughs> show up to kind of go, dude, I was there, and I really loved it. And they always say, "Oh man, if you could have been here Tuesday." And I yeah. always go, "Well, I don't want to be. I don't want anybody to point to the movie and go, oh, you should have seen in rehearsals we." And now I don't know what he did. I don't know why he, I don't know why it turned out like that. You know? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. The mortalized one is the one that just, you know, that's the way it fell off the truck. Uh, I was telling you before we, uh, we started that I saw a video. I'm not sure if you've seen it uh, or not. And I can't even remember how I saw it exactly. And, and this is a, a, the a making of or a, like a, a visual effect. Well, it's like a making of the CGI. It's a, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a, a, before a, and after. Yeah, yeah. Thing of of how you did Mank, and I was amazed by how much wasn't there when you were shooting it. They'd kind of show a picture of Gary Oldman in front of a Burger King, and then it turns into old Hollywood. It wasn't a it wasn't a Burger King, but but look. Um, the world has changed since the 1930s. So certainly since um, um, certainly since uh, since Herman Mankiewicz was was uh, uh, patrolling the backlots at uh, at Paramount, it, I tried to have as much in cameras as possible. Try to change um, uh, as little as you know. In some kind, I think for the most part, it would be 25 percent of the frame maybe 30% mm -hmm. of the frame. I try to have 80, you know, 75, 80% of it in, in camera so that you can reference that when you're right. But, um, but yeah, there was just so much, I mean, so many vehicles that, you know, have, have, can't run. Do anymore. you, when there is, and, and I, I give full credit for the, the, the Burger King thing was a joke. I get full credit no, for, for what was in camera. Okay. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm someone I, I've, I've only used CGI for crowd duplication, uh, yeah. uh at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, but do you know, uh, have you already decided what it's going to look like after you started to make those decisions in post? Mostly, mostly it, it's, it's mostly with an idea of, you know, for instance, uh, probably one of the shots that you saw was him driving up in the car and he gets out of the car drunk. And At Union see, Station, yeah. Yes. Okay, so it wasn't Union Station. It was written as Union Station, but Union Station 1931 had yet to be built. It was built in 36. So we were like, wow, where are we going to – because Union Station is beautiful. It's deco. It's going to be – and um, and then we found in the ret and the research that they would leave from Glendale. And I was like, there's a train station in Glendale? And they said, yeah, it's still the same way. It looks the same as it did in the 1930s. 
um, Hearst used to rent his own train to bring his friends up oh, to. Really? Yeah, so there's like a three car train that he would, and uh, you could take the regular one or you could take the the Hearst Express. Hearst. And um, so I said, well, show me pictures of the Glendale train station. So they showed it to me. And I was like, this is awesome. I didn't even know it was here, but the buildings around it are entirely problematic. You know, there's an Ikea and there's, you know, seven Barnes and Noble for some mm-hmm. reason, no one knows, um, <laughs> but th- they all had to be erased and we had to bring period vehicles into it. And so we turned it over to a guy named Way, who is uh, the most amazing map painter. And I just said, I'm just looking for something that's sort of period deco in the and he came back with three amazing paintings and you choose one and and then some poor person had to rotoscope because we don't have blue screen or green screen when you shoot black and white somebody had to go in and like the incredible shrinking man had to roto and make Uh all of these mats for all these people's heads talk about that talk about the difficulty of uh, of CGI of color yeah. separation when you're shooting in black. And white. Well, you know, it's become such a there 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 is a you know sort of knee jerk reaction to oh well outside the windows we'll just put some blue screen up or you know and for the most part in a modern you know grip truck you'll find a couple of twenty by green screens or a couple of twenty by blue screens. Well, we made the decision in pre production that we weren't going to shoot with a color sensor and have the ability to separate in terms of color because the dynamic range of the image from the black and white sensor was so profoundly beautiful compared to the to taking a color image and just desaturating all the color out of it it's just it was it was light they they just were night and day mm-hmm. um so when once we'd made that decision, you know, it meant that all of the like every time that screen door opens in Victorville, the desert that you see out there is a black and white photograph, high resolution photograph of the desert. And we shot it against white, basically just like this. We shot it as like two stops over uh, exposed white. And then we would make a key and then we would go in and put these blown out images of the desert out every window. And out every time the door opens, and even in the, you yeah. can sort of see it in a couple of them. We put it in the reflection of the door as the glass panes as it opens. So it it just means that that the process of that work becomes a much more hands on and 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 specific artisan thing as opposed to yeah we just bend the knob, take the blue out, put whatever you want there. You now have to really decide in terms of layers. How you're going to, uh, um, you know, kiss that into the into the white? Okay, uh, I am about to run out of time, so I just want to go to a, a lightning round. Okay, lightning. Um, Trent and Atticus, they're good. Uh, I'm pretty sure their first feature score was The Social Network. It right? was. Yeah. Okay, they won the Oscar. They also kind of, when they won that Oscar, they kind of busted down a wall in the composers. Um, branch uh, of the Academy. They'd never, I don't think, given an Oscar to a score like that. I had no idea when he told me it was going to be Nine Inch Nails scoring a movie, <laughs> what that was going to end up being like. But of course, it was uh, amazing. Also scored Don Girl. Um, yeah. uh, and that, I absolutely understood that that was in their yeah. wheelhouse. I never would have suspected that the Mank score was also in their uh, wheelhouse. Here's the thing about I mean, you know this. I I would rather go to people that 
I trust who are as hard on themselves <laughs> as I am and say, what do you think? Do you think you can do that? But by the way, if, if Trent or Atticus had said, I don't, this does not sound like, you know, I would have said, oh, okay, yeah, no harm, no foul. But I went to them and said, okay, this is going to sound weird. I don't know what I'm asking you to do. I don't know what I, um, before I've always been able to give them, you know, with, um, with um, social network, I said, I want a John Hughes movie, uh, but, but circa like, uh, you know, right around the time of risky business and, or, so I need you to embrace, you can embrace the tangerine dream of it. You can embrace um, the psychedelic furs of it, but I, it has to be, for my money, the soundtrack has to um, it has to remind us of technology. It has to remind us of of a kind of of automation. You know, it has to be it has to be beholden to the world of computers. You know, we talked a lot about the you know the, um, the sound of AOL love dial up and and think that to work that stuff huh. into the tapestry of this. And then on uh, on Gone Girl, I said to them. Um, I was in getting an adjustment with a chiropractor and the music that was playing (laughs) was this very strangely disembodied um, sort of, it was kind of like a, like a pat on the back, like everything's going to be okay kind of music. And I said, Trent, I want you to give me, I want to give me the music from a chiropractor that says everything's going to be okay. But underneath it, you go, it's just definitely not going to be okay. So, <laughs> you know, I'm looking for placebo music is what I said. I, I want it to sound like the kind of thing that you would go into like the hammer horror version of a chiropractor and this music is playing and it's basically there to assuage you, but you know that something terrible is coming. And yeah. they said, we get it. And they ran. With it. And then on this, I said, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's Bernard Herman. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if you've got to do Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I don't know if it should be, I don't know if it should be Chariots of Fire. You tell me. And so they played around and they came back with about, I don't know, 40 minutes worth of music. And I just listened to everything and said, oh, this sounds like it goes here. This sounds like it goes here. This sounds like it. And then we laid it all up and we showed it back to TNA. And they were like, well, this we have an issue with, but this we totally understand. And that's where the conversation started. Okay. Uh, I uh, hope you don't mind if I ask you um, what you're working on next. Oh, mm. I am. I'm playing with um, uh, adapting a um, uh, a French graphic novel uh, about an assassin, um, and I am playing with um, Robert Town and I are are trying to break. Um, a limited series on um, it's sort of a prequel to Chinatown, Jake Giddis time in Chinatown with, uh-huh. with Lou Escobar. Um, and I'm working on a, um, a show about film appreciation and, and about um, uh, movies that I love and, and, and with essayists, I love about movies that they love. Uh, it, it... I'm uh, 100% sure that uh, that they're going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to Robert Town's stories. Uh, David. Dude, he's uh, so much fun. No, I know. <laughs> so much fun. I anyway. know. Uh, 
Thank uh, you for Mike doing is this. is a masterpiece, uh, uh, David. It is um, just objectively a masterpiece. Congratulations, boss. Thank you very much. I'll see you soon. See you, dude. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Lee Daniels, Robin Wright, and Viggo Mortensen. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.